Industry Pods and Evergreen Podcast Network are pleased to present the following podcast. A huge thank you to SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce there. Now we're talking private market tokenization. We're getting real with Ami Ben David from Monero, Robin Friedman from Nomura, OEU from ADDX, Scott Lucas from JP Morgan Chase & Co, and Burt Foose from ABN AMRO. Hi everyone, and welcome to the panelists. Um, before we start, I'll just say that uh, Robin had to drop off. She's not uh, feeling well, so uh, get well, Robin. And uh, uh, we'll jump right in. So uh, the subject of the panel today is uh, digital securities, uh, tokenized securities, um, and you know, getting real. Uh, we've been talking about this for, for uh, a few years now, but now we're at the stage where it's getting real, and I'm specifically talking about the institutional market. We have here some uh, great people who are actually at the forefront of, of doing exactly that in the institutional market. Um, and this is the, the subject we wanted to cover today. So before we go ahead, let's start with uh, uh, an introduction of the panel members. Um, Barrett, do you want to take us uh, away? Yes, absolutely. Uh, thanks, uh, Ami, for uh, introducing the panel and, and for inviting me here tonight. My name is Berit Fass. Um, I work with ABN Emerald Bank in, in the Netherlands. Um, I've actually been working in this space, applying blockchain technology within the financial industry and focusing on digital assets since 2014. Currently, I do that um, in the capacity as uh, innovation manager, work within group innovation uh, of the bank, kind of working with all of the different business lines, so across all the um, the products and, and segments that we have uh, on uh, developing and, and implementing digital asset proposition. Thank you. Uh, Oini? Hi, my name is Oyi. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at edX. Uh, edX is a private markets platform. We're headquartered and regulated in uh, Singapore and very happy to be here with the panel today talking about, uh, uh, well, private uh, digital securities in the private market. Yes, and thank you for joining us from Singapore. It is quite late over there, uh, later than in, in LA. Uh, all right, uh, <laughs> Scott, Scott, over to you. In London. Uh, thanks, Amy. Um, my name is Scott Lucas. I'm at JP Morgan, and I uh, lead our um, markets DLT business. So, building uh, DLT trading products on sort of regulated private permission networks um, across the different streams of the markets business, credit, equities, rates, etc. Yeah, and you covered the, the the commercial side as well as uh, the technology, or mostly on the commercial side. On, on the commercial side, yeah, um, we have a technology team that, um, that that I work with to turn thoughts into reality. Great. Okay, so so I think to to to, to start our discussion, um, you know, we're talking about getting real. So I, I'd really love to get from each of you um, just a snapshot of what you're seeing happening, either things that you can talk about or that already went public, or that you can talk about within your organizations around tokenization, things that are coming. Um, or things that you know you see in the market that you think will come in the coming you know uh, uh, quarter or two. So I'm not talking about what's going to be in two years because we've heard that two years ago. Uh, it, it is about what is coming now. What are we working on now? What do we have going into production? Uh, and I'll do it the other way around. So I'll start with you, Scott. Um, tell us, JP Morgan, what are you seeing? Sure. Um, I, I think well, obviously a lot of activity, and and, and my my main focus is really on in the sort of the existing financial markets and and products that sit within what we would trade today so arm's length from crypto but even even in that space um 
you know, we have our own product around a repo that we launched a year or so ago that we, you know, we, we partner with other market participants with. Um, I think we've invested in a company called HQLAX that does a similar, um, a similar thing with tokenization of securities and then moves those collateral versus collateral. So I kind of feel like from the where are we on the, on the curve, um, the idea that you can take an existing asset, tokenize it, and then trade that for value across different um, jurisdictions and different firms, like that's kind of been one. And now it's about productionizing and scaling that to really sort of meet the needs of the market. And, and I think that will be a complementary tool to existing market infrastructure. But it's a really helpful first step to get businesses over the idea of, yeah, this technology can actually make a significant change in how we think about some of those products that have, have not changed for a very, very long time. Um, and the next wave of investment we really see is in natively digital assets. So whether it be issuing securities or uh, derivative products where you know you can use the underlying technology and the contractual basis of that and the um, I guess the you know that remove some of the processes that we have in the existing system to drive efficiency and speed. I don't know, I mean that's where you're looking at with some of your work. that's I think the next level of investment that we'll see in the next um, series of efforts will will come to the market and we've seen a little bit of that with um, issuances by the European Investment Bank um, you know actually issuing uh, a bond onto the public Ethereum network really interesting dynamic between public and private chains and existing products in a native way so I think there's a lot more investment to come on that side um, yeah. and you know clearly we are looking at that along with our peers and, and competitors to see you know what the client need is what the market need is and how we can bring some of that to bear and 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 I think that it took some time because uh, JP Morgan the scale is different. So uh, the Reaper uh, product, for example, this is quite scalable already, isn't it? Is uh, it, it? It is, I think. But you know, it's it's really interesting when you look at the freedom that is um, available, sort of outside regulated markets, to innovate and move at speed versus um, bringing a very long period of case law associated with these products with you and the legal construct around trying to make the technology work in a way that people can agree, um, there's a really interesting interface there. So it's very scalable, but you, you've still got to get over some of those traditional hurdles around legal regulatory boundaries that you've got to work within. Um, yes. but, but, you know, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly that argument has been won. It's now just about implementation. Got it. Thank you. Uh, Oye, you, you, you're, you're, you're live and official with uh, some you know, tokenized products. Uh, I'd love to hear what sort of products you have, what sort of product you're launching, uh, what products yeah. you're going to be launching next quarter. Tell us the whole <laughs> thing. Thanks, uh, thanks, Hami. I think uh, where we were very fortunate, I mean, um, Addix is a blockchain-based uh, private markets exchange. And uh, we sort of started with a blank sheet of paper, right? Designing what we thought uh, should be sort of the optimal um, building blocks uh, to have a private market infrastructure. So um, we actually commercialized uh, last year, just before COVID hit. So it was uh, obviously a very testing time. But uh, since last year to this year, we've actually done uh, quite a number of transactions already. Where we see the predominant use case at the moment are funds and the excess and the democratization of um, private equity funds or VC funds, uh, private market type products uh, to high net worth individuals. So, um, you know, you would have, we were seen uh, our recent release, uh, we did 
a deal. Uh, we did a partners group global CCAV fund, which we tokenized on our platform. Uh, that was last month. Uh, we actually just today announced uh, the uh, launch. Actually, we closed the first round of a crypto fund. And uh, interestingly, that is our expression at the moment of crypto exposure, which is the underlying is actually a fund managed by a group called uh, Trovio in uh, Australia. It's actually a bunch of uh, ex-JP Morgan uh, colleagues of Scott, I suspect. And, uh, you know, that was very well received by our investors. So um, funds, as I mentioned, is yeah, it's great. Uh, it's, it did very well. It's a you know, very uh, well-performing fund. But um, where we're seeing the use cases develop over time, and this will become more institutional, it's actually on the bond side, as well as the pre-IPO and the structured product side. On the bond side, we now are starting to see issuers come with us on digitally native uh, bond deals. And we think uh, this will be a space that in the next uh, 12 to 18 months will be very deeply developed. Uh, one final thing I would mention uh, before I hand it uh, back to you, I mean, it was that uh, with the banking infrastructure, obviously we started out uh, not developing that banking infrastructure because we were a young startup, uh, but you would have seen uh, UOB, United Overseas Bank, which just announced its uh, results today. Um, the CEO mentioned our strategic alliance because I think um, the group itself sees a lot of interest and uh, potential development with blockchain. They're working with, like, with partners like ourselves to see how we can then work with a new uh, setup and a traditional infrastructure to see how that might work. Amazing. So I think getting real is, uh, we already covered that. And uh, Barrett, you have a lot of things happening at ABN Amor as well. Tell us what you can talk about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's always um, yeah, an interesting balance to uh, to try to strike, of course. And, and I think for us, you know, when it comes really to, to tokenizing securities, we don't have anything like Yet, um, uh, we are close to it, uh, though. Um, I think in the past few years, um, ABN Amaro has spent a lot of uh, time actually more um, in the area of digitizing trade finance, for example. Um, the focus of the bank has been has been changed a little bit. Um, so also for uh, for the team that's working on digital assets, we're really focused on, on um, digitizing uh, securities uh, at this point in time. And the thing that you don't see, and I think that's valid for, for a lot of um, financial players is that um, we've been working on a lot of uh, uh, propositions and, 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 and concepts for, for the past two years. And uh, a lot of the time actually goes into uh, detailing out uh, the legal and regulatory frameworks, right? So I think that's one, that's the thing that really costs the most uh, time and energy and, um, and it's actually really, really uh, complex because regardless of, you know, which market we, we go on to as a regulated institution, we have to comply with regulation no matter what, right? So that's a very important thing. Um, what I can say is that um, we have a couple of um, uh, issuances and, and deals in, in the pipeline. We might even participate in a deal before the end of the year, but um, definitely first half of, of next year. And I think next year we'll see a lot more um, issuances of financial institutions um, happening. Um, um, very interesting, Oye, that you, you mentioned uh, to expect that the bond market, uh, the, the tokenized bonds will, will take off because this is really one of our, I'll say, key uh, areas that, that we're focusing on. Um, it's a business that is, I say, close to us and, and, and um, that's also really where, where we're starting, right? We're starting with the segments and with the asset classes that we know really well that are close to us, that we have, um, you know, relevant uh, networks and, and, and um, 
let's say, significant reach before doing, you know, more exotic uh, asset classes, which uh, obviously are, are on the radar. Um, but um, we do notice that with our partners, peers, investors, um, that taking the step of uh, tokenizing something already makes it exotic enough. <laughs> so um, keeping it, keeping the rest um, as much as possible uh, familiar for everyone. Yeah, I, I think what's what's interesting for me is that I've been doing these conferences two years ago, and we were talking about the future. Right now, we're talking about okay, uh, legal is a, is a, is difficult and regulatory is difficult, but we've done this for the last two years, and now we're looking at actually deploying stuff. And especially, it's it's a little bit easier for a mid-sized bank than than a huge bank to 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 move faster uh, and maybe go after accounts that are let's say mid-sized and not just a huge account. So so there's a lot of place for the uh, for the mid-market also to innovate. Um, uh, what I can say is from our side, you know, at, at Onera, we've been working on the FinP2P network to interconnect the banks and enable transactions across the market. So we see a, a cross-section of what everybody's doing. So we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, projects that are about to launch across, you know, you mentioned bonds before, but also, you know, uh, real estate, uh, uh, funds like you guys are doing, uh, uh, and, and uh, private equity fund, hedge funds, even crypto funds. Uh, we're seeing money market funds, we're seeing treasury funds coming in, and we're seeing pre-IPO companies uh, also looking at tokenization. So at least four or five different verticals that are seeing real projects going into production in the institutional in the institutional market. Um, so what I'd like to take kind of the, the next question is to talk about the progression of things or, or just get your sense on, on where things are going. Um, it's almost a, a question on two levels. One level of the question is, um, crypto versus uh, securities because the, the the thought process and a lot of people here in the conference would expect that you know crypto brought us the digitization the concepts of blockchain and so on so you would expect crypto to be deployed first in institution but i i get the sense that a lot of institutions would actually deploy securities digitized long before they will not long but before they will launch uh crypto do you, do you think that this is a kind of a, a, a reasonable assumption or do you think that crypto will come alongside uh, crypto crypto? I mean, uh, uh, you know, spot trading and things like that. Do you think that uh, uh, is, is the financial institution market ready for crypto or will it be starting with uh, securities as, as kind of um, um, kind of seeing right now? Um, Barry, do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, um, actually, just thinking about how, how to answer that question, I think that there will definitely be um, institutional uh, crypto. I think there is there is an, an interest for it and an appetite for it, although it will not be for everyone. And I think it, it really highly depends on uh, your activities and your profile and, and also the appetite that you have as a, as a financial institution. Um, I can say for ABN EMRO, it's not something that we that we currently have uh, planned to, to provide any services uh, on. Um, but that doesn't mean that that no one uh, else will yeah. will do that. So for us, it's definitely will definitely be securities uh, first, and um, I, I can imagine that that sounds or feels a little bit uh, counterintuitive because um, uh, with crypto, um, uh, the assets are there, the markets are there, um, uh, liquidity is there, and these are all things that are very very important also for digital securities to to take off. So it might feel strange to to not go for that, but um, there are a couple of other considerations, um, um, uh, yeah, to, that you have to take into account as a financial institution before you 
involve uh, yourself with crypto or offer any crypto services. And an important one there is uh, is also still uh, regulation. Uh, and uh, the regulation, I think, around crypto is different around the world, um, even within Europe, uh, wildly different stances from uh, the central banks on what you can and cannot do with crypto and what you should and shouldn't offer. Um, and that just makes it um, a lot more difficult to navigate also, I think, the crypto industry for um, Europe-based uh, financial institution. Um, because even if you would be allowed to provide certain services, you would be kind of confined to your own small market um, because, uh, you know, 200 kilometers uh, away, um, uh, the regulation might be completely different. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. And, and, and Scott, in, from what you're seeing at, uh, you know, at your organization, other organizations that you, you work with, um, I, I think it's not only that securities um, are coming ahead of crypto, but actually we're now deploying the, the infrastructure and the technology and a lot of these wallets and the technologies are might be able to trade crypto later it's not it's the same technology or very similar technology it's just that what do you start with and it's a lot easier to start with securities are you seeing the same do you think the same uh applies to you guys yeah certainly securities and and i would i would sort of broaden that out to um existing regulated financial products are sort of where we need to focus first and, and the reason we have to focus that first is because we're allowed to do that and we're not allowed to get involved directly in the crypto markets. And, yeah. you know, um, I think there's there's quite a lot of coverage around interest from institutional investors and sort of how that might eventually play into the institutional market. But for right now, um, and, you know, until there is both regulatory clarity on what is available John, and also the cost of doing that, because clearly when you get into that framework, you then start thinking about capital, et cetera, and that has a different expense for an institution like ours and does perhaps for someone else outside the regulatory space, or regulated space, you know, that, that then sort of plays into how that would deploy. So for right now, like crypto is, is not on the, in the playbook for us, you know, it's not something we can focus on, but, you know, quite clearly there's real benefits in the technology that, you know, cryptocurrencies run on um, and, and observing those um, markets and looking at, you know, interesting ways of adopting some of those processes to regulate the financial markets, to drive efficiency, take out cost, offer different products than we can today because the technology just lets you do different things. Um, yeah. that, that's, that's certainly the focus for, from our perspective. Yeah, and I think for, for what I think that it has implication for people that are watching us, and I know a lot of people are watching us that are coming from organizations that provide services like you know custody solutions, uh, settlement solutions, and so on. And they were trying to get into financial institutions with their product, which is crypto product. And one of the things I'm saying to them is, well, it's the same product for digital uh, assets because uh, you know a wallet is a wallet, and you should be focusing on offering custodian uh, services and other services for digital securities first. And then you deploy, you'll get to crypto in the end, but not the other way around. Um, that's an interesting, uh, I think it's a, it's a turn of the market that's interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's separating the sort of what the rails are with what's in it or on it. Exactly, and, exactly. And, exactly. you know, if you feel you've got the infrastructure to offer services related to those rails, wallets, connectivity, et cetera, then that's a play to probably that would be more acceptable in the short term because, you know, we, 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 we can't and, and don't intend on in the short run. Um, getting involved in crypto space, like until there's real clarity. Yeah. And and the other question I want to ask, and maybe I'll I'll I'll, I'll offer that to you, uh, we, um, the question of uh, a private blockchain versus a public blockchain. Everybody here in the conference is obviously coming from the public blockchain, while the institutional market definitely started with private market. When we started the group, we had uh, the the group to tokenize uh, digitize private markets. We had seventy financial institutions, 
um, doing talking about interoperability and interconnectivity. This is the project we're deploying now. And everybody said private only. Uh, we don't want to touch public blockchain. But now I start to feel winds are slightly changing. I know you started with private as well. We, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that, uh, look, if when we started the business and we thought and we drafted it on that white piece of paper, as I mentioned to you, I think there was no way that we, we could have come from the approach of getting licensed and getting in and out of the MAS sandbox without being private, right? Yeah. That was just not possible. I think private has a lot of advantages where regulators would like to see because you know cybersecurity, you you know certain features, you know how you, and, and all those things that come with the private uh, blockchain. I think are still applicable today, but I think what's happening is with in, in Singapore in particular because of um, the way that the uh, regulators are looking at crypto and how they're allowing certain institutions to have the uh, P, what we call the Payment Services Act licenses to operate uh, a crypto exchange is that I think we will start to see um, regulators look at how the public and the private chain could potentially coexist in the ecosystem. But I do think that that does force the public chains to then adopt certain uh, measures to ensure that they also meet regulatory standards or, or, or that the private chain has to you know, build certain features in to ensure that the connectivity into the pub public chain will eventually have the right um, you know, oversight and the right sort of KYC, AML, all, all the things that regulators are extremely uh, cautious that's, about. Yeah. That's exactly the point that, you know, when I talk about public versus uh, private, when we're talking about securities, the public is not really public because it is, uh, I call it like a VPN on top of public. It's it's a closed network. It's because you can only allow specific people in based on their uh, credentials, KYC, AML, accreditation, uh, whatever it is. So you have closed networks on top of, of public networks and you have so many public networks and so many private networks that, you know, without a network that interconnects all of them, you're going to have just as, uh, you know, a mess of, of, of networks. So it becomes less important or almost technical to decide to go with a private blockchain or a public blockchain as long as you can uh, kind of create a fence around the set of clients that you want to work with uh, that meet your institutional guidelines. Um, but I, I know, I know, uh, uh, Barrett, you have kind of you've been in the blockchain and uh, environment uh, in in the Netherlands for a while. So you know you're kind of a, a fan of the public blockchains, right? As well, I mean, on a personal level. But within the organization, it's private yet, right? For us, um, uh, no, actually, actually not. I mean, obviously, starting out uh, with 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 private uh, blockchains. Um, and, and I think, you know, a couple of years ago, that, that was indeed, that was the norm. Uh, like you said, 70 institutions and everyone said private only. Um, but, but at the moment, we don't have any, let's say, projects live that are using private chains. So we're actually um, putting the ambition for ourselves to, for any new issuances and new projects that we're going to do, we would be using public blockchains. Um, the idea is that, yeah, and, and um, I mean, I think, when you're talking about um, solutions that can be used also for digital securities. Um, and, and I think one of, I think a couple of the, the important things and important reasons why you want to digitize or tokenize securities or any financial assets is, is also because um, increased accessibility, um, but also the discoverability and especially um, the interoperability. I think that's very, very important if you want to ensure that assets can be traded Hopefully, at some point in time, also across borders, if, if you know the regulatory frameworks are are, are in our favor, um, and and I personally think that 
public uh, blockchains are, let's say, more suited to help us achieve those things. Nevertheless, I do believe that you need probably a layer or a, uh, you know, a VPN, if you will, of permissioning on top. Um, there are just certain rules that we have to comply with. Um, there are certain things, certain information that you might have to keep or might also want to keep private. Um, so you will have to layer, obviously, the ultimate solution um, uh, to a certain extent. But I think that that, that underlying infrastructure where uh, those tokens are uh, originated and, 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 and where they can be traded, um, yeah, I, I would definitely say public. Interesting. And uh, Scott, I don't see uh, Repo running on public blockchain anytime soon. Am I, am no, I wrong on this? No, no, absolutely not. Not, not that product, I think. But public and private will absolutely coexist. And I think the financial markets will, you know, and, and they do, you know. So I go back to the European Investment Bank. That bond is on the public Ethereum chain. You know, there's a sort of a ring-fenced uh, area sort of under Sockton Forge that has sort of where, where that is held. Um, so... This sort of enclaves, I think you've spoken about on public chains. They already exist um, for public securities, um, and and you know there there will be other opportunities for that. And I think there will be coexistence of you know regulated market activity on both public and private chains. Um, mm. I do think you know that the start point for a lot of this does need to be a, a private chain, depending on sort of where you are on the curve, um, in order to get that regulatory approval, in order to keep clients comfortable with you know the safekeeping of assets and the access to those assets um, particularly at scale so i think you know there, there's a bunch of arguments for and against for both of them but I, I would expect at some point you know in the foreseeable future there will be coexistence of assets on both of those chains and we will need the you know, appropriate cyber and kyc and aml sort of you know protections that you have on private chains associated with parts of public chains and that's a technical and quasi legal problem to solve that's that's not a law of physics so you know it's, it's solvable uh, we don't have to break down so yeah. it's somewhere all open to to all these options effectively and matching the right uh, the right solution to the right problem effectively yeah. and i think that that takes me to the next question which is you know one of the areas where public blockchains are potentially stronger and maybe not not in all cases uh, would be the settlement side of the of of the uh, of the of the equation because when you're talking about trading uh, private securities, somebody has to move the private securities, somebody on the other side has to pay, right? Or if we're doing DeFi or, or something, somebody has to uh, collateralize the security, but on the other side, we want to move money uh, as a lending, if you're doing uh, lending of uh, solutions and so on. Um, Scott, what do you think, how do you see the future kind of, of, of the, the payment leg? Because the whole thing doesn't work if you can move securities digitally, but uh, then you, you have to, you wire the money right uh and wait three days that that's not what we have in mind uh yeah it's and it's there's practical and philosophical questions there that are really quite interesting around sort of run with it no not just not just how we make it work today but you know like so how do people how to how to how do consumers who want to get exposure to cryptocurrencies actually get exposure to that how do they turn dollars into bitcoin like you know how do you then trade it like there's a there's a whole that's not seamless either necessarily you've still got to move money from point a to point b at some point transform it and then then once you're in the ecosystem you've got a bit more yeah. um frictionless activity but you've still got to get in the ecosystem and at some point you might want to get out of the ecosystem so there's that that problem exists whether it's sort of in the sort of public blockchain crypto space or whether it exists in like more regulated financial market products where you're exchanging 
you know, asset for cash as well. And maybe you do that at a high frequency or you do that in a different way. I think the interesting challenge inside the sort of more you know, regulated markets, whether it be public securities or private market activity is, I mean, what's the expectation and the, and, and the capability today? And how do we make sure we don't get backwards? And you know, one of the challenges there is, you know, securities versus cash and the existing architecture settles delivery versus payment in most instances. So we don't have a, a, a didn't send you the money or you didn't send me the securities. You get that instantaneous sort of exchange and removes the credit risk from that particular trade. Um, there's not a lot of cash on distributed ledger out there. So therefore you can tokenize as many things as you want and you could theoretically tokenize anything. Um, and I think, again, that's a relatively sort of accepted argument, whether it be a piece of a wind farm, a piece of art, uh, US Treasury or whatever, you can represent that as a token in whatever form. But unless you have the cash to exchange that for in a way that is you know, equivalent from a versus payment like simultaneous way that you can today, which you can in places, um, then you go backwards and actually you're introducing a different type of risk into um, the ecosystem that actually we've kind of moved away from. So I think, you know, to your point around um, you said that the cash problem and how you manage that settlement leg and what that looks like, you know, if we're maintaining the existing risk profile and moving forward and you're generating efficiency for the back of that, great. If you're going backwards, I think there's there's a real challenge there to get people to accept that extra layer of risk as an offset for the efficiencies. The efficiencies and the costs and the time, et cetera, would have to be significant to then turn around and say, you know what, even if it's a 20 minute gap, um, that has actual practical risk framework implications for financial institutions as a cost associated with it. So that, that I think is going to be solved. And, you know, as, as we see, you know, whether it be the appropriate regulation, and I don't know what appropriate means, but appropriate regulation around stable coins to then have them accepted as part of the broader ecosystem, whether it be central banks issuing a currency or even just moving part of the currency on chain onto a ledger. So you've got regular dollars moving on a different technology platform. But I think bringing some cash at scale will really accelerate um, the opportunity to improve the settlement, which then takes that risk question away, which means then you're just realizing the efficiency benefits that are available through tokenization. And, and that that piece there, I, I expect, is something that's probably solvable over a 12 to 24 month horizon, or at least sort of getting into the space where you're bringing mass to that. Um, yeah. But it, it's yeah. challenging. You know, it, it, I think it's surprising how both in the on the public crypto side and the digitized security side, the thing that everyone thinks is easiest, which is cash, is actually one of the harder, harder problems to solve when it comes to entering and, ex and exiting either of those markets. Yes, uh, I think that at least in the security side, you're right. That we are waiting for those kind of long-term solutions, but uh, because we all want to go to production and we're talking about getting real, we are finding the solutions that are immediately available now. And those, right. solutions, yeah. those solutions are, for example, you know, you talk about pre-funded accounts uh, where, you know, you talk about pre-funded accounts where you actually mimic traditional escrow and you give people a coupon yeah. for their money and you use that. So that that's doable, right? Uh, yeah. Then you have the stable coins, the, 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 the USDCs of the world. And how much do you trust them? If you're maybe a small player, you're okay with it. If you're a bigger player, maybe it's too much uh, a counterparty risk. And then you go up the letter, you talk about treasury. Can you use treasury tokens as, as a means of payment? And 
I think oh, you, you're in the camp that you had to find a solution. So I'm assuming you're using some sort of pre-funded account model. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I was just going to say in, in our sort of setting, when we set it up, uh, clearly, you know, we have, because it's a private uh, blockchain, it's also easier to execute all of that. So we are instantaneously settling, it's DVP, and we are using pre-funding uh, as a mechanism. But I actually think that sort of going forward, because of the connectivity that we see with the traditional institutions, I think we will solve the cash piece uh, hopefully quite soon. Because if everybody puts their head to how do we connect with a, a chain, how does the bank connect there, and how does the cash move, I think that's level number one. And as you said, uh, Ami, I think the next step will be things like stable coins. How does that work? CBDCs, how is that going to incorporate into the uh, into our ecosystem, I think that's actually going to happen quite quickly. I would say, you know, as part of your what's the next two years, I think this is within the next two years. In fact, I think it'll be the next year. When, but when, uh, I think it's moving faster in Asia. I mean, yeah. moving over to, to, to Barrett, you've been involved in some uh, CBDCs, I think trials and, and processes and so on and, and, and consortium, but still no, there's no stable coin in Euro, is there? Uh, let's say in Europe today. Yeah, nothing substantial enough that you could settle, um, you know, large uh, security trades uh, with. And and yeah, so to be honest, and and but then I'm really just talking about let's say the Europe uh, zone. I'm a little bit less optimistic for how fast we will have a solution. I think um, uh, I think a Euro stable coin is is not that close. Um, I think financially, uh, that's a little bit difficult uh, at the moment uh, in, in Europe because you would kind of have to have a negative interest on that on that stable coin uh, for it to make sense for anyone to offer it, um, which is obviously something that no one would um, would accept. So unless you can get really creative, um, I think it would be hard to have a, you know, privately or commercially um, issued Euro stable coin uh, at scale um, to be used for security settlement um, digitally. So um, besides that, I think a CBDC also for the Europe zone, I, I don't expect it to be there in the next 12 to four, 24 months. Um, I think most uh, central banks in Europe are still investigating this. They have you know, concrete investigation plans for it. Um, they will last at least another two years and, and only then you know, could an implementation uh, be starting. Um, and then I think the final, you know, hurdle that I do also see with when it comes to CBDCs is that I think a lot of the projects um, uh, from central banks are currently focusing on uh, designing and implementing a, a retail CBDC, which actually might result in a design or is actually very likely to result in a design that is that can absolutely not be used for uh, for security settlement. Um, so, so I'm a little bit less optimistic on when you know we'll we'll get saved by the central banks because they're going to issue a, a digital currency. Um, so for the time being, we have to look at at other um, possibilities and, and mechanisms to do that. Um, obviously, pre-funding is an option. Um, Although I think in the long term, it, that's also suboptimal, right? We, we all want some, still something better than that. Um, but, but I do think on the short term, that's one of the mechanisms that you know, we'll have to use um, for the it, next it is, it, is a, it is a funny one, the sort of, and I agree with you, the CDBC, if you turn it into a full-fledged central bank digital currency, actually it gets quite complex. There's a whole bunch of factors around that debate that are quite interesting. If you just turn around and say, why don't we just put euros on a 
distributed ledger path. So I've got target two for cash settlements, I've got target two securities for security settlements, and now I've got target two digital for digital settlements. It's just euros on a different form. And I think, you know, there's, it'd be quite helpful if, if there was an approach to for simplify, simplification, because you could see, you know, you would then down select to a core technology provider, you would then provide a sort of a, a, a natural kind of layer that actually you could extend the capabilities of the currency if and when you chose to do that as a central bank, like if they, if they wanted to go down that route, you know, a lot of the sort of logistical and sort of, and, um, and infrastructure problems would be sorted to then think about, well, actually now on those rails, I can put other types of digital currencies. But if it's just cash on the European Central Bank balance sheet or cash on the Fed's balance sheet, they have different types of sub accounts now, have a digital one. You know, it'd be really interesting to move that. That would be something that could move the needle forward. I'm not particularly hopeful, but it would be a, it would be a, a nice halfway house to, uh, to accelerate towards if we, could, if we could win that argument. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we are now, uh, as I said, we have the solutions of the of the of the prefunding. We can look at other solutions that, again, uh, I haven't seen. I keep talking about the option of using treasury uh, tokens as a payment mechanism because they are securities and they are stable um, and they are movable. So there's some some logic to that as well, and and uh, and also kind of the regulatory side is being looked into. So that's that could be an interesting solution. But what I would say right now to our to whoever is watching right now. Uh, here's a huge uh, uh, business opportunity. Find a way to do a, a European Euro uh, stablecoin and and be a bigger circle. So that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, you know uh, something we learned from here. Um, I think for for our last few minutes, I'd like to do a, like a, a quick round of of just coming back to a question that uh, I'm always you know it's important for me to to answer when we talk about tokenization. That's the question of why. Okay, so we are working on tokenization project, but why? What what is the what is the what are the big things that um, are worth this move to the tokenization platform? And I, I think you know some of them are quite obvious, but uh, but I'd love to hear your opinion specifically on projects that you are in, where you see the big kind of uh, reasons to, to do tokenization and why it's so critical for organizations to to focus on that. Um, where shall I start? Uh, Oye, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, we started really thinking about solving a, a problem or solving a need, right? We, we, we started with sort of saying, we want to democratize private market investing. How do we best do that, right? What are some of the issues? What are some of the pain points? Fractionalization uh, clearly changes the risk profile of a private market product and makes it a bit more suitable for high net worth individuals. Uh, how do we do that on a very efficient ledger so that, you know, we are managing all of this uh, the issuance and the post-trade uh, as efficiently as possible. And as it turns out, obviously, blockchain is one of the most, uh, at the moment, the most efficient and the best way possible to execute that. Now, we started off thinking that, uh, we started off thinking democratization, but as we went into it, we realized that there's so many inefficiencies in the capital markets that are solvable so that when we just built a platform, a lot of these things came naturally to us. So issuers came to us saying, we want to do a digitally native bond because we see the efficiencies of a smaller company, for example, not wanting to go the traditional 200, 500 million bond route to a smaller size, a shorter tenor, you know, quicker turn, there's less, there's less fast, there's less intermediaries involved. And, uh, you know, I think that's starting to sort of expose actually a large number of inefficiencies in, in the traditional markets and traditional securities. So it's not even about opening new markets. It's actually just the traditional, the same clients 
uh, and giving them different avenues for financing or giving them uh, different ideas for uh, you know debt funding or, or things like that or pre-ipo raising for example yeah well there's a lot of room for optimization uh, scott what about you what are you seeing, seeing in terms of the reasons why you're you're going to your organization saying dlt dlt yeah i think i think there's a lot of i mean like with any with any business you know big or small there's got to be a commercial driver for it so like where is like where's where's the outcome that is relatively commercial because you know like making it a bit neater if it doesn't have any impact on the economics like no one's really bothered um, and I, I do think you know in an environment where we're say where there's lots of liquidity not a lot of yield um, but still a lot of heavy cost then attacking the efficiency angle is quite a useful one because you can take things out of the bottom line and simple things like you know removing inefficiency from the operational process which then has costs associated with it um the very fact that you know to to the bond point like you know they haven't changed in 100 and something years like you know we still pay coupons semi-annually or annually because people used to have to tear a strip off post it away someone post it away somewhere and then get it processed and then get their money and then account for that in an actual physical ledger and when we dematerialize bonds through the 70s to 90s that didn't change so like there's dematerialization 2.0 coming which you can turn around and say well actually a lot of those processes that we get people to do today we don't need people to do we don't need to accrue that credit risk we don't need to maintain sort of a whole bunch of engines we don't need to figure out like how much coupon i own because i sold it 100 days into the coupon period versus how much you own and therefore there's two like all of that can just go if you think about a specific bond having a different set of characteristics and there's a lot of cost in that and if you can get rid of that cost like someone wears it somewhere and particularly in the end result is going to be you know underlying issuers so you then make capital flows cheaper that's a good outcome yeah. um so i think that's kind of like something you know, step out of the specific details and look at kind of how we get into um like large-scale general positive outcomes then that feels like it's a way of attacking some of these issues about making you know better use of capital than spending it on the process yeah 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 and 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 buried from your side what what are you seeing also do you have also a um you know focus on optimization or in the innovation kind of group are you also talking about new use cases um yeah so actually actually both so obviously one of the things that, that we also started out with is this, this all these optimizations and efficiencies that 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 we could um could could achieve and although that is true um we also had a little bit of a reality check right because if you do just one bond issuance tokenized the bottom line of, of your operations is not going to change right um so unless you actually um do the majority of your for example your bond issuances or the majority of your business completely digital and completely tokenized only then will your your actual cost really go down of course so um, um, and, and I don't want to diminish the potential um, efficiencies and optimizations that you could achieve, but we have to be realistic as in that's not going to, you know, pay itself out and on day one. Um, but besides that, indeed, working from innovation, we also have to look at uh, new avenues of, uh, of business that we could generate. And I think, uh, you know, I already heard, you know, the smaller tickets. So can we make products and processes accessible to customers that are just below, you know, our current thresholds because the technology is more efficient? Um, can you indeed create, for example, secondary markets? Um, again, liquidity is also not guaranteed on, on day one, right? So, um, but I don't think we should be scared of that uh, chicken and egg problem because if nobody starts it, we will also never get there. And I think that there is enough 
um, benefits to gain uh, to basically start this change, um, even if the big benefits are only coming um, a little bit uh, further yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think my, my kind of final comment, I think we're, we're about to close in, uh, in terms of time. I, I would say that, yes, in terms of optimization, it's a very easy sell because, you know, you can show it, you can demonstrate it, and you can, it, it's, it's a good, good show. But also, if you want to get some excitement within the organization, you can talk about new markets where you can take market share uh, and build new businesses. And that's at the higher level uh, of, of, of the kind of the financial institution it could also be interesting. A good example that I always look at is collateralization. I mean, we've seen from the crypto world, collateralization could be as simple as a pair that, uh, you know, a lending and borrowing could be a thing. It doesn't need to go through 15 layers of approval and credit checks and so on. So imagine you can take your real estate offer or holdings or your um, my shares in in a, in a, in a in a unicorn that I, I founded, and instead of having it sit down, I could borrow money against it at a click of a button, and nobody checks my credit and nobody does anything because it's completely automated and defied. This is a whole new market, and it's exciting. So that's the other side of the equation, trying to balance this. Uh, okay, let's do things that are significantly more optimized than before. But also, let's offer these new things that the digitization offers that couldn't have been done uh, without it. Um, I think we are we are out of time at this stage. Um, but I really want to thank all of you. It was a uh, exciting and very interesting conversation. To, and I'm, uh, I want to thank you again for coming today. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Good day. Bye. -bye.